0: The other day, I went with my dad to an Indiana basketball game. Now, being an Illinois fan, that was a painful thing for me to do, but he enjoyed it, and I wore the Indiana red and everything so that um, I wouldn't get thrown out of there. I didn't wear Purdue or Illinois or anything. So um, never. I'd never been to that stadium before, neither had he, and our seats were actually pretty close, but if you've ever been there, to get down to your seats, you got to go up, and then you walk down. And as I was going down... I was at the top, and I could see the entire stadium, and there were people there, and then I kind of slowly walked down to where I was getting closer to the court, and then we got there early, so we saw the court and the players warming up and stuff, and it was interesting to see the different perspectives. You know, when you are up high, you can see everything. You can see the players warming up. You can see all the fans. You can see everything that's going on, you know. As you get closer, you start zooming in on the players more. And as I was down by the court, I realized just how tall the players were. And I think I'm a pretty tall guy, but some of those players being six foot nine, six foot ten, and they're shooting, and I'm kind of looking up at them from the floor, it gives you a different perspective when you are closer and when you're zooming out. And this morning, we're going to do something different as we um, approach God's word. We're still going to preach, I'm still going to preach expositionally. But as we start our series in Titus, I'm not going to just preach the first four verses of the book. I'm actually going to preach the entire book of Titus this morning, okay? It's a rather short book. Um, But what I want to do is as we start this series, I want us to see the entire book of Titus before we get into the individual sermons that I'm going to preach. And I want to do that for a couple different reasons. Um, First of which, it is very beneficial for me as I'm studying the book to try to understand what the message of Titus is from start to finish. You know, sometimes as you are studying scripture, maybe you felt this as you've gone through the Bible on your own, you start out in the book of Romans or the book of Philippians, and you think you understand what it means, but then as you study through the entire book, you start seeing different themes and things that come up from the book That probably would have affected how you read the first couple chapters as well. So we want to take a look at the entire book of Titus today to see what is the message of Titus. And then that will affect us as we continue to study the book. And so like I said earlier, looking at the court, you can see the court from pretty high up. You can see it from very close and you notice different things. It's very good, the way that I normally preach, where we just look at a couple verses and the way that we're used to with Pastor Reed and other people who have um, preached in this pulpit. It's very good for us to see scripture up close, but sometimes it's also good for us to step back and say, what is Paul doing in the entire letter to Titus, and what is he trying to communicate with the message here? And so this morning, we're going to look at the entire message of Titus from almost a 30,000-foot view in The air. Now, I'm afraid of heights, so that's a little um, nerve-wracking for me, but we'll try to get through it together. I also want to just come out and say that this is still a sermon, so this is still something that is not just for introduction, but the message of Titus, looking at the entire book, should still affect our hearts and lives as well as we study God's Word. You see, you, you can study God's Word. I believe you can have an entire sermon on one book of the Bible or on the entire Bible, Or you can have an entire sermon on one verse or even one phrase or word in the Bible, and it is still preaching God's word. So this morning we look at the message of Titus, and I've entitled this series, Instructions for a Healthy Church. So as we look at the book, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, he writes this letter to Titus, who is a delegate of Paul's on the island of Crete. He's given him instructions for how to plant healthy churches, for how to establish healthy churches on the island. And I think that message is important for us to understand as well. And so before we dive into the letter itself, I want to look at a couple of different things having to do with the book. First of all, the authorship. We see right in the beginning of the letter that the author is Paul. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This was pretty customary of Paul to do, to come out and say that he is the author of the book. Now, if you were to read many critical scholars, many people who are critical of the Bible in larger academic institutions, they would debate this. They would say that Paul didn't write the pastoral epistles, but that it was someone claiming to be Paul or someone using a pseudonym. Um, But we know from God's word that Paul said he wrote the book of Titus, and we believe that to be true, and there's a lot of good reasons why we can believe that. Um, even besides the fact that it's written in the Bible, um, the early church accepted that this was Paul who wrote it. They believe that throughout church history, it's been accepted that Paul wrote the book of Titus, and I believe he wrote this book right after the book of Acts. It's one of the arguments that people make. Well, how could Paul have wrote Titus? If the church seems pretty developed in the pastoral epistles and we don't exactly know when Paul went to Crete and when he would have left Titus there, well, I think that he left Titus there in Acts 27. And then after the book of Acts is completed, Paul wrote this letter to Titus. So probably around AD 63 or 64. It was one of his last letters that he wrote with 2 Timothy obviously being the last one. Now he's writing to someone named Titus. Now we know who Timothy is. We know who Paul is. But who was Titus? Well, Titus was one of Paul's closest companions. He went with Paul on several of his missionary journeys. He went with him to Galatia. We see in Galatians chapter 2. We know that Paul that Titus was a Gentile. Why do we know that? Because in Galatians 2, we see that Titus went with Paul and the Jews wanted him to be circumcised because he was a Greek. Other than that, we don't know a lot about this person named Titus, except for the fact that he's mentioned in a couple other letters in the Corinthian letters in Galatians, and that he was highly respected by Paul, he was someone that Paul trusted to oversee this church planting movement on the island of Crete, and that's where Titus was doing ministry. Crete's an island in the uh, in southeast Greece um, by the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 150 miles long and. 30 miles wide. Um, There'll be a geography quiz later for you guys to see if you can locate where Crete is on the map. Um, Paul probably visited Crete in Acts 27 as he's going to his trial in Rome. Remember, they were shipwrecked and he left Titus there, which we'll talk about momentarily. Um, And Crete was a very interesting place. We see that as we even read the book of Titus. The people were a little bit unruly. They were liars. They were um, partiers. And we see Paul address that several times in the book of Titus. And it wouldn't have exactly been an easy place to do ministry. It wouldn't have been an easy place to establish a church. And so he trusted Titus quite a bit to say, I'm going to leave you here and start this movement of churches. That's something else I want to point out that what Titus is doing is not necessarily starting just one church. He's not just the pastor of one church like I am, but he's really starting a network of churches on the island of Crete. Um, I don't want to necessarily call it Midwest Church Extension in Paul's day, but it was something like what Henry does in trying to establish new churches. And we see that he needed to appoint elders in the book of Titus. That brings us to the purpose of Titus and what's going to be the main thrust of our message Purpose of Titus, I believe, is to give instructions to Titus on how to establish and maintain a healthy church. What does it mean for a church to be healthy? What does it mean for a church to be functioning properly? Paul uses the phrase in verse 5, to put what remained into order. How do you do that? Well, Paul explains that to Titus in the book of Titus. And we see as we look at this that a healthy church lives according to sound doctrine. Paul's going to use these phrases throughout the book of Titus, sound doctrine and good works. He's going to use them over and over again throughout the book. We're going to see that a healthy church lives according to sound doctrine. Now, as we think of doctrine, a lot of times we can be tempted to think of books. I've got a shelf in my office that's full of doctrine or theology books, different theological concepts that we can talk about. But when Paul uses sound doctrine in the book of Titus, he's actually talking about more than just what you believe. What you believe is important, obviously, but he's also talking about how you live. As he talks about people's actions in the book of Titus, he says they live not according to sound doctrine. Their lives do not match up with how God tells us we should live in his word. And so Titus, the book of Titus that Paul wrote to this man not only gives us things that we need to believe theologically, and that is very important, but it also shows us how to live as well. And what we believe and how we live obviously affects our church together. And so with all that being said, the different introductory parts and I'll probably make more comments about some of the setting later. I want to look at the book of Titus in all three chapters in our sermon this morning. And I'm going to talk about how we live according to sound doctrine. The first way we do that is this, is that we live in harmony with biblical leadership. We see that in Titus chapter one. We live in harmony with biblical leadership. What do I mean by that? Look at chapter one with me. Chapter one, let's read verse five. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul, after having his introduction, which Tim read for us and saying who this letter is to, it's to Titus. He starts giving Titus some instructions on what he is supposed to do while he is on the island of Crete. Now, again, Titus wasn't necessarily a pastor, but he was establishing churches. He was doing the work of the ministry. And you can imagine, he didn't have nearly as many books as we have today on pastoral ministry. And so there was probably a lot of wondering, what was he supposed to do? When I started here at Sycamore my first week, and I wasn't preaching that next Sunday, there was a moment when I sat down in my office and everything was moved in. And I sat down and thought, well, what am I supposed to do now? And thinking about that, well, Titus, or Paul tells Titus, this is what you should do. You should put what remained into order part of what an elder does we're going to talk about that as we go through the book of titus that he is to help set things in order means to organize things it means to make sure that everything is running like it should the island of crete was out of order we're going to see that as we go throughout the book of titus that they were not living in accordance with sound doctrine so what's paul's solution to that well he says you should appoint elders you should appoint overseers And elders aren't different than pastors. In fact, I believe that pastor, elder, and overseer are really the same office. But it's the same man, just using three different terms for them as well. So an elder is a pastor. But he says to appoint elders to help put things into order on the island of Crete. I was reading this week about some of the Revolutionary War. And if you've ever done any reading on that, it's interesting that when the troops went to Valley Forge, and they were kind of reeling from the war. George Washington brought in this guy named Baron von Steuben, if I'm saying his name right. He was a Prussian military officer. And his job was pretty much to make sure the army was functioning effectively. They'd been losing, they had been sick, had a lot of people die. And so Baron von Steuben went to Valley Forge during that six month, and his job was really to transform that army and put it into order. He didn't speak any English, and so he needed men like Alexander Hamilton and other men to help him translate what he was trying to say and get all the drills and things um, translated so that the troops could understand it. But he was able to set things into order for this army. Now, what did he do? Well, besides showing them all these tactics and things that they needed to do as an army, he also improved their basic hygiene as well. He made them shower. He made them eat right. He made sure that the kitchen was not by the infirmary or any other thing like that, but so that things were more sanitary and that they were actually acting like civilized people. And he turned the army around, and many people would point to that moment at Valley Forge and say that that's when the army finally started getting their act together and winning. And why was that? Because they needed to be transformed. They needed stuff put into place. Paul's telling Titus that this is part of what an elder does. He helps organize things. He helps set things into order. So this was a big responsibility for Titus, and so notice what Paul says in the rest of the verses. He gives the qualifications for these elders, for these overseers. You know, a lot of people as they're interviewing pastors, as they're having these big search teams, and you know, some of the bigger churches have a pretty big search process, and it's almost like NCAA March Madness. And you get through all these interviews, and you go time after time again, and you finally get down to the last, you know, the final four, or so that they are interviewing there's a lot of interesting things that you get asked as you are doing a pastoral interview and other jobs that I was applying for before I started with Midwest Church Extension. I had some different things about uh, myself, my education that were asked, you know, obviously if I was going to get married and all those different things, but very few churches asked me about the pastoral qualifications. Very few churches that I met with I actually went through the qualifications with me to see if I was qualified to be an elder. And I found that kind of shocking. Because you see, in the Bible, we obviously see men that are gifted and that are able to teach and that we're able to do great things for God. But when it comes to establishing elders, when it comes to establishing pastors in churches, what does the New Testament emphasize? What does the New Testament say is the standard for who should be a pastor and who should be an elder? It is the pastoral qualifications. And so look at them with me. If anyone is above reproach, this really defines all of the qualifications that we are looking at. A pastor should be above reproach in these ways. He should be the husband of one wife, which I take to mean a one-woman man. It doesn't mean he has to be married, but it does mean he has to be faithful to who he's married to if he is married. He should be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy, for gain, But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All of these qualifications that really define who the pastor is. And I think that's important for us to understand as we start thinking about elders. See, we believe as a church that there is el- there are elders who teach, but we also believe in a plurality of elders to where there can be other elders that are either paid by the church or not paid that help in the church's leadership as well. And that's in our constitution. That's part of our church's plans as we continue towards graduation to start looking at establishing lay elders and other men who are qualified to teach and who meet these qualifications. As we start thinking about this, notice that there's much less said about what the elder is able to do, and there's much more said about who he is supposed to be. And we wonder why so many pastors fall from ministry because of moral failure and different sins that they've committed. Sometimes we can be so focused on what men can do in their gifting, but we're not focused on who they are as a person. The elder's character is described here in this first section of Titus, and it's really meant to be in accordance with sound doctrine. We're gonna look at this especially in the sermon next week. Notice in verse nine that his job description is that he must hold forth the word and give instruction in sound doctrine. This is what he's meant to do. He's meant to be a person of the Bible, a person of the Word. He teaches it, he helps others understand it, and he rebukes those who do not live by the Word. And we see that in verses 10 through 16, that there are these people that Titus would encounter on the island of Crete that were not living according to sound doctrine. And Paul uses some very descriptive words to... Um, talk about their behavior he says they are insubordinate they are empty talkers deceivers they must be silenced they're upsetting whole families he uses all these terms to describe the people on the island of Crete and really what he's doing is he's showing this is what biblical leadership looks like in the qualifications and this is what unbiblical leadership looks like in this description of the people who were on the island You see, because these people were not just lying, they were not just doing things that were ungodly, but they were also trying to teach the Christians how to do the same things. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is important what Paul is saying. He is calling these people out. He's saying, Titus, you should find men who meet these qualifications and you should rebuke those people who act like this. We see that there's really two different types of people Paul is going to meet on the island of Crete and and Titus must be very careful as he evaluates them. One group lives according to sound doctrine and the other one does not. And so he rebukes them sharply, and he encourages Titus to do the same. That's one of the roles of an elder, of a pastor, to make sure that false teachers are not leading the congregation into deceitful doctrine. So as we look at the message of Titus, we see that we must live in harmony with biblical leadership. What does that mean? Does that mean that you guys are going to like everything that a pastor that I'm going to say or that the leadership is going to say here in the church? Well, probably not. Not. What does that mean though? Does it mean you're going that you should support the leadership of this church? Yes. It also means that you should hold the leadership of this church accountable for their character. And what do I mean by that? The pastor's job description is listed here in Titus chapter one. And and if I or any other leadership does not live that way, then they should be held accountable because of it. Obviously done in love. Now we'll say as we look at the Qualifications that none of us are perfect. And as you look at this list, it can be rather daunting. I can look at it and think, man, I could not live up to all these different qualifications that are here. There are definitely times where I'm not as gentle as I want to be. There are definitely times where I'm not as hospitable as I want to be. So what do I think they're saying? I think they're saying that if you see men where this is their character of their life, where they're just always defined as being arrogant, where they are never gentle, where they're never hospitable with someone, if they're not self-controlled or disciplined, then no, they should not be an elder. There's much more we could say about that. But living in harmony with leadership not only means supporting the leadership of your church, which I hope you do and which many of you are very good at doing, but it also means holding them accountable for their actions as well. What else does it mean? It also means living a godly life yourself. I understand that not everyone in this room is going to be an elder or is qualified to be an elder because elders should be men. But all of us should look at these qualifications and say, where do I fall short? How do I not measure up? And Paul is going to give us some more specific instructions about that later. But you see, the reason that these qualifications are given to the elder is is so that he can be an example to the rest of the church in how to live that way. I don't think there's a single man that shouldn't try to hold himself to these qualifications, that shouldn't try to be gentle, that shouldn't try to be hospitable. But all men in our church should try to embody these things in their own personal lives. So how do you measure up to these things? How do you look at these qualifications? Are you more like the first list or the second list that Paul gives in Titus chapter one? And then are you committing to growing in these areas? Paul talks more about this in Titus chapter two, where we not only see that we need to live in harmony with biblical leadership, but we also see that we need to live in a community of discipleship motivated by grace. Now that's a mouthful. I'll say it again. We need to live in a community of discipleship motivated by grace. Look with me at chapter two of Titus, where Paul instructs Titus on what he is meant to teach the churches there. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's that word again, sound doctrine. And notice it's not just what we believe, but it's actually how we Act. How do I know that? Because look at what he says after that. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and steadfastness. He starts addressing different people groups within that Christian community on how they are meant to live. And he starts with the older men, what they should be like, what their character is, how their lives are to be consistent with sound. Doctrine. They should be self-controlled. They should be reverent. They should think clearly. Look at what he says to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Older women are given some things that they should be living by as well. Some different commands from Paul. This is what were to define their lives. And Paul doesn't leave anyone out. There are admonitions to older men and older women, and then to younger men and younger women as well. But notice something with me. Notice what he says to older women. They're not only supposed to live a certain way, but they're also meant to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and children. And this is so important for us to understand as we look at Titus chapter 2. That Paul gives us things that we should live by, but he also encourages us to disciple other people in our churches. Who would teach the younger men how to be good wives and how to love their families and children well? It would be the older women in the church. They would show them how to do that, much better than maybe even the pastor could. Who would teach the younger men how to be self-controlled? how to be disciplined. It would be the older men of the church. And so Paul starts painting this picture of a community of discipleship where older men are pouring into younger men and older women are pouring into younger women. And notice that no one is left out of this. We either are an older man or an older woman that need to do these things, or we are a younger man or younger woman that needs to be poured into by someone. I've been in a lot of weddings in the past couple of years. I've been in about seven or eight of them. And we always, usually the groomsmen go and get something to eat, usually steak, and we go to some kind of steakhouse and you know you see eight or nine different guys at a table and we always get asked why we are there. So we tell them, Well, he's getting married tomorrow. And it's always interesting what they try to tell us. You know, usually they tell us, Well, here's the alcohol that's available for you guys, or here's where there's some entertainment in town, or um, they always kind of ask us what our plans are for that night. And usually they include getting some steak and playing games and just, you know, making sure that we're not too tired for the wedding the next day. And as I thought about that, I realized something, that our world has an expectation for what young men are supposed to be like. And it is not what Titus tells us They are meant to be in Titus chapter 2, or what Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2. The world has an expectation for what all of us are meant to be like. They do not expect older men to act the way they are described in Titus 2. They don't expect older women to be that way as well. And the people on the island of Crete were definitely not good examples of this. So part of living the way that Paul instructs is being different from the world. See, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of older people, younger people, a lot of older people don't want to pour into the next generation. They think their time is done, that they don't need to invest in someone that is younger than them, that someone else can do that, that it's not up to them. And a lot of younger people don't want to necessarily hear what older people have to say. But Paul says, this is what a healthy community of discipleship looks like that no one is off the hook and all of us are trying to grow in how we interact with others. I thank God for older godly men in my life, both pastors and people who were just lay people in the church who have encouraged me on what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a good pastor, what it means to be a good young person of God. You see, we do things, especially as young people, we do things the way that older people have instructed us sometimes. Even as I was baptizing my brother Quinn a couple months ago, I noticed myself saying the same things that my pastor would say as he would baptize someone. See, we all need people that are pouring into our lives, no matter how old we are. So just briefly, I'll ask you, who are you pouring into? Who's someone in your life that you are seeking to teach and to train You might say, well, I don't know if I have much to share with someone. Well, I can guarantee that everyone in this room has a lot that they could share with younger people on what it means to be a godly person of God. Older men, who are the younger men that you are teaching, that you are training on how to be a good husband, on how to be a good man, on how to follow God, how to be self-controlled? Older women, who are you teaching on how to be a good wife, how to be a good young woman? And then for the younger people as well, who are we seeking to be discipled by? This is a community of discipleship that Paul envisions for the churches in Crete. And it's a community that we should want in our church as well. But notice that all of this, this whole community of older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women, all of it is motivated by grace. Do you see that in verse 11? All of this is motivated by a community of grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Why should I invest in others? Why should I live a godly life? Because God's grace has appeared. Now, sometimes we misunderstand what grace actually is. We all know that it's God's riches at our expense, at Christ's expense. We know that grace is part of the gospel. And Paul even says that there, that the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. You know, as many of you know, I teach in a school and I have a lot of students that ask me for grace on assignments to give them something that they do not deserve. And you know what they do not understand? That grace doesn't just let you get off the hook, but grace trains us. Look at verse 12. The grace of God not only brought salvation to all people, but it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace doesn't just say you're free and you don't have to live in a certain way, but grace trains us. Grace doesn't just leave us like we are, but it helps us live godly lives. The things that God puts into your life to help make you a better Christian, that is part of his grace as well grace is what motivates our discipleship and our growth in christ grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age living a certain way living different from the world that is not legalism that is not law keeping but it is is grace. Having ways that you are meant to live that are different than your friends who are unsaved, that is not a lack of grace, but friends, that is the grace of God. We shouldn't be legalistic, but we should be living differently from the world. And there's so many people that misunderstand that. Do you know why? Because They don't know what grace really is. They don't understand that God's grace actually changes us. It makes us more like Christ. And so, friends, how are we cultivating a community of grace in this church? Sometimes we need to be gracious and overlook certain things, not make a big deal about something. But sometimes we need to use God's grace to help train other people and what it means to be a godly person of the Lord. Older men, who are you training in grace in this church? How are you training the younger men, older women, who are women that you're pouring into in this church and outside of this church in God's grace? See, God has been so gracious to us, not just in salvation, but he's created us. He sustains us. He holds us together. He did save us, but also look at the rest of the passage. It says, who gave himself are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace is not just present in salvation, but it's also going to be present when he comes again and he makes us more like Christ. The entire act of you being dead in your sins and being brought into the family of God is part of God's grace working in your life. And so how are you cultivating this community of grace here? First of all, have you received the gospel? Have you been changed by this grace of God? This free gift that God has given to you of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then if you have been saved, how are you growing in grace in your life? That doesn't just mean that you get to do whatever you want, but grace says that we change and that we renounce ungodliness and that we do good works and we live according to sound doctrine. We need a community of discipleship motivated by grace. This is the vision that I desperately want for our church. See, we've been talking about proclaiming Christ and very passionate about that, but how do we proclaim Christ as a healthy church? Will we share the gospel of grace with others? Telling people what Christ has done and then exhorting them to live according to that gospel. Seeing their lives changed and then to grow in grace. Have you received the grace of God? Are you being transformed by grace? And then how is this grace impacting who you are discipling in this church? Notice Paul doesn't say that you need to be teaching other people, unless you're over the age of 65 or 70, but all of us are included in this. All of us have areas that we need to grow in. All of us have people that we need to reach out to. And then who is discipling you? Who is pouring into your life as well? I think this applies to all of us as well, that we all, no matter what our ages, need people who are sharing truth with us, who are speaking God's word into our life and who are helping us grow in Christ. This is Paul's vision for the churches in Crete. And notice verse 15, he says, declare these things, exhort them, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is what Titus was supposed to teach in his churches there. And we need this so desperately in our churches. We need this so desperately in our world. Churches that are not only discipling one another, but doing so because of the grace of God. We need to live in a godly community motivated by grace. And then lastly, we see in chapter 3 that we need to live in the world doing good works. We need to live in the world doing good works. You see, it would be easy for us to say, that we need to focus on our own church and our own selves and discipline one another and isolate ourselves from the world. And there's different groups of Christians that try to do that, that try to start these compounds or things that distance themselves from the world. But that's not the message of Titus. That's not what Paul instructs Titus to do. Look at verse 1. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You see, part of the grace of God, part of Paul's message to Titus means that we live differently in the world. That we don't just keep all these things to ourselves, but that the way we interact with the world is different. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means we treat authority with respect. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, even on the island of Crete. Even on the island where the different leaders there were saying that Cretans are liars and evil people. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to authorities. And I could preach a whole sermon on this, and I'm sure I will when we get there in Titus. That there are people in our country that want to disrespect authority and say ungodly things about them because they do not agree with their political views or they do not think they are... Godly, And they want to show them a lack of respect. And this is not the way of a Christian. Part of how we are to live in the world means treating authority with respect. It doesn't mean that we support evil. It doesn't mean that we have to vote for these different authorities. But it does mean that we are different in how we treat them. Paul exhorts Titus to remind the Cretans of this thing see, many of them were rebellious. Many of them would get easily stirred up about things, and we can see that in our country, in our day and age as well. But your Christianity does not allow you to be disrespectful to authority. What does it look like for me to be a good Christian? It means respecting our authority that God has put in our lives. Now, are there times where we must stand against evil in our nation? Yes. Are there times when we should not submit to government if it goes against directly what the Bible is saying? Sometimes, yes. Does it mean that we can be disrespectful? Does it mean that we can be unsubmissive? No, it doesn't. Treating authority with respect is part of how we live in the world and do good works. Secondly, we remember our own salvation. Verses 3 through 7 of chapter 3 is a beautiful Picture of the gospel. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred by others, and hating one another. Describing our former life, we'll get verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. How can we live in the world with all of these evil people, with all of these people who are doing things? that we shouldn't do and that we shouldn't have in our lives. How can we live with them? How can we share the gospel with them? Part of it is remembering that you were a sinner too and that you were not as good as you are now. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. That God saved us from our sinful past and gave us a new life in Christ. And it says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You were just as sinful as your unsaved neighbors, as your unsaved friends, as your unsaved co-workers. And the only reason you are here today, the only reason you are able to live a godly life, it is because God saved you. It is because you have been made alive in Christ. It's because you've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us in Christ. Then notice what this does in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This really is a beautiful picture in Greek. It's almost like a poem that Paul was saying here. And it reminds us of how we live in the world. You might have friends. You might have neighbors that are ungodly, that their lifestyle is something you need to get away with, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. But when you think about, how can I share the gospel with them? How can I build a relationship with them? You need to remember that your sin is not any better than their sin. That you were once dead in your trespasses and sins as well, and God saved you, and that you're not perfect either. This is part of us living in the world, doing good works. And then we finally do good works. Look at verses 8 and 11 with me, through 11 with me. He says, The saying is trustworthy, talking about what he said before. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We see that concept of good works again. There's sound doctrine which affects how we live. There are good works which affects what we do now. And as we live in the world, we are meant to be doing good works. Now, what are good works? Well, we'll talk about this as we go through the book of Titus. But they are simply things that are good, things that God has told us to good, things that are profitable is actually what it's translated as. They're motivated by our salvation. They don't earn us grace with God, but they're a result of being a child of God. And notice what he says to avoid. He says, avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There's all these different things that we could get into that would distract us from doing good works, and that is living like the world. It's not living like a Christian. Paul says, rather devote yourself to good works. We do good works, and then lastly, we show hospitality. Verses 12 through 15, Paul ends his letter Normally as he ends his letters, he has this sign off, he gives people certain instructions, and we definitely see that here. But we also see some hints of hospitality as well. Look at verse fourteen. And our people and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Why? So as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. This is part of how we live in the world, doing good works, showing this grace to others. How do you live in the world? What do people know you by? How do they interact with you? We can have two extremes. We can either be so distant from the world, and sometimes that's not a bad thing, but we can want to distance ourselves so much from the world that we don't reach out to them that we don't share the gospel with them, and I don't think that's a right way to live. Or sometimes we can go so far to the opposite way, to where we adopt their worldly practices and we start acting like them. And Paul says, how should you live in the world? You should live as a Christian, interacting with people around you, doing good works, and letting others see those good works as you live among them. You see, Paul is giving Titus instructions for a healthy church, but that healthy church wasn't just to keep those things to themselves, but the church is meant to be a witness of Christ in the world around them. So what are you known by when other people talk about you? How do they describe your character? Do they not know you at all, or do they know you only for doing things that are ungodly? Are there times when you think that you're better than maybe the people that you are sharing the gospel with? Do you need to be reminded of your salvation? What are you doing to share Christ with others around you? These are all things that are part of us living in the world, doing good works. As we close, as we wrap up the book of Titus, again, we've gone through a lot of different things from a 30,000 foot view but it still is a message and it's still something that we need to respond to as well. And so I have a few questions for us as we consider the book of Titus. First of all, how do you function with biblical leadership? Do you support the leadership that is here in this church? Do you hold that leadership accountable? How do you measure up to those things that are given and how are you training to help even in leadership in this church? Secondly, how are you growing in grace? How are you being changed by God's grace? Is it motivating you to live a godly life? Is it helping you disciple other people in your church? Is it training you for righteousness? And then lastly, what is your reputation in the world? How do other people know you? How do other people view you? Friends, this is the message of Titus. And it's a great little book that we're going to study together by God's grace and look at deeply in some of the next sections of the book. But the message of Titus is not just for us to hear and do nothing with. It's not just here for us to appreciate, but not put into action. But the message of Titus is to give us instructions for how to have a healthy church And for how that healthy church interacts with the community around them. So my prayer for us as we walk through this book together is that we would take the instructions from this book and use it to make our church healthier and reaching out to the community around us.